the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to The Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and thanks for joining me for this, our last show of the year. Participant is a media company known for producing films such as An Inconvenient Truth, Spotlight, and Just Mercy. Their CEO, David Linde, will be here, and he'll tell us what makes them distinctive. What differentiates us as an entertainment company or as a media company is our partnerships with what we call impact organizations, so NGOs, foundations, nonprofits, all around the world who are doing the the boots-on-the-ground work around impact. And then you will hear from David Beckman, the president of Bread for the World, a faith-based organization dedicated to ending hunger both here and abroad. And when it comes to nutrition, there is one time that is especially critical. Because that's the key time. It's from conception to age two. That's a thousand days. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the brain of a baby is being formed in that period. The bodies are being formed. So if if that uh, baby lacks uh, good nutrition, the body and brain do not form correctly. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, December 29th. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation has announced that, starting in 2020, it will support an indirect cost recovery rate of 29% on all new project grants, nearly double its current rate. The Lilly Endowment's investment gains has pushed it ahead of the Ford Foundation to become the nation's second largest foundation as measured by assets. San Francisco-based Tipping Point Community has announced a five-year, $30 million initiative focused on helping foster youth in the Bay Area navigate the transition to adulthood. College enrollment dropped 1.3% this fall from a year ago. Egg cartons are the next packaging to be replaced by reusable containers. Pete and Jerry's Organic Eggs have been piloting a reusable egg carton in stores in New Hampshire and Vermont, and customers are loving the idea. And finally, some library news. Becoming, the autobiography by Michelle Obama, was the New York Public Library's top checkout of 2019. Educated, a memoir by Tara Westover, plays second. And late fees are about to become a thing of the past at the Los Angeles Public Library. That's because the library has decided to end overdue fines on books and other items beginning next spring. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with David Linde, a participant, right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. If you're interested in reading transcripts of guests' interviews from the business of giving, you can find them at denverfrederick.wordpress.com. And now back to the show on AM 970, The Answer. It is a real challenge to create extraordinary content that will inspire social change while also being commercially viable. But a company that is doing that with exceptional skill is Participant. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their Chief Executive Officer, David Lindy. Good evening, David, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you. 
Participant is a 15-year-old company. Tell us how it got started, David, and who was behind this idea? The company is the brainchild of Jeff Skoll, who was the first employee of eBay. He created the company, as you said, 15 years ago with under the very, very basic belief that very, very high-quality storytelling can be inspirational to audiences in trying to attach themselves to positive social change around the world. Mm-hmm. He was a little bit ahead of his time. and Completely. Uh, you have an exceptional roster of films starting with an inconvenient truth that have inspired cultural conversations on really relevant and vital topics. Tell our listeners some of the other films that you guys have produced or financed. Well, I think most recently, you know, what, what we try to do is we're trying to make movies that are, that are about a conversation mm-hmm. or, or TV shows or short-form digital content. But everything that we make should be about an important conversation. And four or five times of the year, four or five times... And four or five times in a year, we take these specific pieces of content and we try to essentially ramp them up um, towards what we call social impact campaigns in conjunction with the release of the movie or the, or the television show. But uh, films that, that you mentioned in The Inconvenient Truth, but most recently Spotlight, Roma, uh, Green Book, The Post mm. um, in the narrative feature department. We have an amazing documentary out on Netflix right now called American Factory yeah. that we're incredibly proud of. But we also, a lot of what we do, we like to think about about our content in terms of three different types of change, behavioral, cultural, and institutional. Um, one of the, my favorite movies that I always think about consistently is Food, Inc. Yes. Um, where you literally saw um, legitimate behavioral change around the world, around people who decided that they, they, would, they would actually address the way they, they ate every single day to hmm. improve their lives. You know, there's so many issues out there right now and so many great stories. Hmm. How do you choose what films to work on? Unbeknownst to a lot of people, we are probably one of the biggest independent creators of content in Hollywood. We make about make or invest in about four or five narrative feature films every year, four or five documentary films every year, up to three television series, and another about 30 hours of short-form digital content, which is distributed through our YouTube channel called Soul Pancake. Mm-hmm. And each one of those strands of content has its own department that is constantly out there looking for and developing new ideas. But to be honest, what we, re- what we really... But to be honest, we really, really rely on artists. And our very strong belief is that artists can effectively see around the corner and on issue, right? If you try to make a movie that's just to issue, mm. you're going you're gonna to end up making spinach, and nobody likes spinach, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, so but, but we're really reliant on and, – and a really good example would be a documentary that we made about the um, global refugee crisis a couple of years ago by Ai Weiwei yes. called Human Flow. Mm-hmm. And we had no idea when we got involved in the film that that issue would literally explode in Europe the exact summer that we brought the, that we brought the film out. We never would have anticipated that. But we believed that what Ai Weiwei was doing would be important. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, these artists that you talk about, they have an ability to see around the corner. And you have the ability to really trust them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been around a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've talked about your target audience being the conscious consumer. What motivates that audience, and who is it comprised of? We, we've talked a little bit about the films that we've made, so you can imagine the kind of audience that we typically have, have engaged with around our content. 
What's happening around the world right now, especially with the uh, growth of the millennial and the Gen Z generations, is that they are increasingly looking at the world um, for as much value as they can get out of a specific uh, – out of a transaction, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And it's not like – a perfect example would be Tom's shoes, yeah, right? Which is you can buy a shoe and actually make a contribution to somebody's life. So we're trying to engage – we believe strongly in that generation and we believe strongly in trying to create content for them because they are actually leading. And what they're doing is they're leading other consumers, other, other their, their friends, their neighbors, uh, their partners in actually trying to identify more value around the way that they spend their money. You know, you said a moment ago you've been around for a while. So let me ask you this. How do you use storytelling to deliver maximum impact? We're a partnership company. We we partner with great artists who make great content. We partner with – we have a distribution system around the world for all of our films and television shows with the best, uh, strongest distributors in the world, which is vital because, quite honestly, if nobody sees your film, there is no <laughs> social impact. Yeah. So distribution is, is, is really key. What differentiates us as an entertainment company or as a media company is our partnerships with what we call impact organizations, so NGOs, foundations, nonprofits all around the world who are doing the boots-on-the-ground work around impact. Mm. And what we do is we take the, the awareness factor that is created by a great movie and we combine that with the work that these organizations are doing to effectively accelerate the work that's going on. The way that I like to look at it is, and, and obviously we're on we're on the radio, so so you'll have to imagine what it is I'm doing. But you, you can see you know you can see the work of a, of great organizations like the Sierra Sierra Club or the International Rescue Committee, who are sitting there day in day out addressing the issues and and contributing to real positive change, and. Here comes the movie, and the movie essentially pushes that campaign along a little bit. We're not the organizations doing the work. Mm-hmm. The IRC and the Sarah Club are the ones doing the work, right? What we're trying to do is make a contribution that effectively creates so much awareness, additional awareness around a specific issue that people are inspired to actually join up. Are there other points on that continuum? Because I'm thinking about the movie. I'm thinking about the awareness. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about at the very other end the action. How does it go from awareness to action? Are there some milestones along the way that help you get there? Well, every piece of content is different. But the future for what we call impact media is that campaign or the work that's being done is not singular. Mm. Typically, when you look at the work that's being done around impact media, it tends to focus specifically around one movie. Um, but movies have a lifespan of about 12 to 18 months. Okay. And then they begin to disappear. Um, as Alfon- Alfonso Cuaron likes to say, they, they go into the library. Right? <laughs> um, uh, and I think that the future for the kind of work that we, we and others do is that is a sustained version of this work where the movie provides its version of an accelerant around social change. But the campaign itself lives well beyond um, just the life of a movie. Um, I can give a couple examples in in in, the, in, uh, in, a, in a few minutes, but that's I think where digital short form really comes into play. Right? Is mm-hmm. you, you've got one of the beauties of what's going on in uh, as 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 contentious as the conversation can be around these big platforms like Facebook and and YouTube right now. One of the beauties of these platforms is the mass reach that they have. Yeah. And and what's amazing about short-form content is that it's relatively inexpensive to make. You can make it very, very quickly. 
and you can reach an audience very, very quickly um, on a mass scale. Well, let me ask you about one or two of those examples, Mm -hmm. if I can, because we have a lot of nonprofit organizations who listen Mm -hmm. to this show. So cite an example of a film and an NGO you work with and the ultimate impact that was uh, realized. Well, this can be kind of a long answer. Okay. So I'm going to go for it. But but it's also the most current example of what I'm talking about, which is Roma. Mm. Um, uh, and Roma, which came out you know well over a year ago. Yep. Um, uh, if you'd like to see it, you can see it on Netflix right now. You know where it is. We 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 um, we pursued two campaigns on Roma: one in Mexico and one in the United States. Here in the States, I think it's probably not very well known that in the 1930s when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, two forms of work were excluded, farm work and domestic work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, was, uh, it was obviously race, racially based yes. and it was a, a give to the Southern Democrats at the, at the time. Um, so domestic workers in this country really have no rights, right? have no social security, have no benefits program, do not have paid time off. And there's an amazing organization called the National Domestic Workers Alliance. You know Ai-jen Poo. She's been uh, on the show. Who, who leads it. Um, who have been working for, working for decades to bring these kinds of rights to, uh, to, uh, uh, to domestic workers. Um, and we've been working very closely with them in creating awareness around the issue and actually trying to get a Bill of Rights passed in the United States for domestic workers. And last March... Senator Kamala Harris and Representative Jayapal um, began that process by sponsoring a national bill of rights for uh, for domestic. Wow! So you're getting legislation, well, potentially. But again, you know, we're contributing. We're contributing. Yeah. What we're doing is raising awareness around through a beautiful movie in a campaign that's been going on for decades, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, I I would never want to. I would never want to put participant out there uh, to attributing that kind of work. No, but to it could us, be a tipping right? point sometimes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. In Mexico, there's an amazing organization called CASE, um, which has literally for a decade now been lobbying the Mexican um, legislature and Senate to pass some, to pass social security legislation for domestic workers in Mexico. Literally a decade. Mm-hmm. Alfonso Cuaron was was absolutely focused on making a legitimate contribution to the kind of work that to the work that Casse was doing, and we partnered with them in not just getting people to see the movie, but actually having the conversation, going into the Senate, pulling them in through the movie, being able, allowing them to identify with the issue at hand. And earlier this year, Social Security legislation was passed in Mexico, um, which was an incredible victory and, and something we're, we're really, really proud to have been involved with. But it doesn't stop there. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is what I'm talking about, sustained impact. Um, the uh, Social Security uh, – well, Social Security, of course, um, you have to sign up for it, right? And it's not just the domestic worker. It's also the employer, mm-hmm. right? Because that's where the benefits are coming from. So we – have been working with Widen and Kennedy, which is the the big um, yeah. uh, uh, agency or creative advertising agency and brand agency, and they pro bono are working with us to create a PSA in Mexico that explains in in being directed by a friend of Alfonso's, a director and cinematographer named Rodrigo Prieto, mm-hmm. so high, very very high quality. Um, which the Mexican government has agreed to broadcast across all um, every te- television channel in Mexico. 
So which is going to this is going to happen in November, right? So the sustained campaign is beginning to work. Roma is right now it's, it's a little bit in the library. Right? <laughs> but it lives through the campaign. Yeah. It lives through the campaign work. And what we're hoping is that within two to four years, we'll have all two and a half million domestic workers signed up for Social Security in Mexico. That is a great story. That That'd really is. That really brings the point home. Mm-hmm. How do you decide what films you're going to do a campaign around? It's probably less than half the films you do. And which ones? We see why you did it for Roma. Um, are there kind of campaigns that just don't lend themselves to that kind of outreach through a nonprofit? Everything that we make really is about something. And it should it should spark a conversation. Mm-hmm. But – we're not that big of a company, and if we ran very robust social impact campaigns on every single <laughs> – everything that we did, we would have thousands of employees. Yeah. And so what we try to do is focus in on what we call four flagship campaigns every year mm-hmm. where a specific piece of content really lends itself – to uh, impact work that's going on, where we are able to identify organizations that can benefit from working with us um, uh, on a can- or where or can can benefit from our working with them yes. on a specific campaign that they're that they're um, that they're engaged in. A good example, for instance, and one of the and one of my one of the first things that I was able to to engage in when I got to participant was when we made an inconvenient sequel. Mm-hmm. This I think is a relevant example. The Sierra Club has been and is actively out there trying to convert. I think it's fifty American cities to renewable to to renewable energy by the year twenty thirty. Um, uh, so, so the movie itself is about converting to <laughs> <Right>. renewable energy, <laughs> right? And so, we were able to partner with them in providing the movie to the kinds of convenings and meetings that they're holding around the country to effectively put a little bit of gasoline in yeah. their campaign, right? And you know, it, it's uh, and the work that they're doing is is tremendous. But just to be able to give people the opportunity to spend ninety minutes actually seeing the work in progress is an incredible inspiration, I think, for people. So we were really, really pleased to be working with yeah, them. Just great stuff, David. Um, let me digress for a moment and ask you about nonprofit organizations who make their videos for their volunteers and their donors, and they show it at the gala, they show it on their website or YouTube. Are there any common mistakes you think that many of them make? I'm going to answer that question in an indirect but direct way, which is the power of storytelling, I think, if I were to contextualize it in three three words, is it has the ability to inspire people. Um, the work that you're describing through these organizations gives empowers people to mm-hmm. actually take advantage of the inspiration that they've uh, that they uh, that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. And Last but not least, by connecting the two, inspiration and empowerment, you're you're scaling, you're you're connecting everybody together to scale up the work. And I think that that's the power of content. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the important thing in creating something that you believe is representative of what it is that you're trying to accomplish is to think about those three things, right? Is to think about why the work that you're doing is so inspirational. Think about why the work you do is so empowering to people, mm-hmm. right? And think about why, by connecting everybody around your work, you're actually scaling up the work. And if you can capture that, which is not easy, right? <laughs> you know, and we have a lot of professionals who work really, really hard making 
you know, drafts and drafts and drafts of, of every, everything that we do, if you can capture those three things, right, it really, it really works, and it's incredibly satisfying. Yeah, not easy, but it's a good mental checklist for people who are trying to do that to have and no, work and, from. And, and also with technology changing so rapidly, you've got yeah. a lot of young people who are very, very talented who are beginning to, to really express themselves in very, very exciting ways, mm-hmm. right? People are, are becoming better at the kind of work that you're doing, right, yeah. because technology has enabled them to become better at it. Well, we all know that uh, the movie industry is one challenging industry, and it can be even more difficult when you're trying to find that sweet spot between social impact and commercial success. When you arrived, David, in 2015 at Participant, uh, they were having some difficulty in doing just that. What are some of the things that you've done that have helped get the company back on track? Well, what what really, you know, we, we really follow Jeff's vision. Mm-hmm. And you said it earlier, but, but 15 years ago, his idea that he expressed was prescient. It sure right? was. Is, is what it is that we're, we've been doing for 15 years. Lots of people are now joining us, which is fantastic. We, we welcome more participants, trust me. What Jeff asked me to do was refocus the company. Right? And the company had gotten into some businesses that it was at a disadvantage in. It was, it was the scale that you needed to compete in certain businesses lies with very, very big companies. Mm-hmm. Right? So we refocused the company around what it is that we do very, very well, which is content. Right? And I gave the people who, who run the content division, which is run by an amazing woman named Diane Wireman, who's our chief content officer, gave them some more resources uh, to be able to develop and control more material. I come from a film distribution background. That's sort of in my blood. You were the chairman so, of Universal Pictures, among many other jobs in the industry. Um, uh, and so I, I, I with, a, with a, a lot of really talented executives at Participant, we rebuilt the distribution system around, around that content to give it the greatest opportunity to reach audiences. Who are some of your distribution partners? We have a, we have a, we were, we're, we're not, I wouldn't say that we are distribution agnostic, Mm -hmm. right? But we tend to, we work with a lot of different companies, um, primarily because you don't want a distributor to distribute something that they're not, they they don't feel connected to or that they don't value themselves. Mm -hmm. So we spend a great deal of time targeting specific distributors for specific content. But, Warner Brothers, uh, Universal Pictures, Focus Features, Magnolia, Sony Classics, uh, Netflix, yeah. Amazon. Uh, we're in business with just, with just about everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, I might add, it just seems like it's a good time to be a participant. You know, the timing of, the, of, of everything that's going on, it really is a, a very sweet time uh, to be doing this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Look, it's incredibly rewarding. But one of the reasons it's so rewarding is because it's working. Mm-hmm. Um, when we made When They See Us, the television series uh, that broadcast on, on Netflix earlier this year, it was, the fa- it, it was seen by more people in, I think, the first, uh, the first week that it aired than ever, any limited series in the history of Netflix. Goodness. Right? So how valuable is that to, to, to watch a great artist like Ava DuVernay mm-hmm. Um, uh, develop and curate and create an incredible piece of art and then see audiences around the world embrace it so quickly, yeah. right? And, and, and yes, it is about something, and it is, about, it is a story that needs to be seen. It is a conversation that needs to be had, 
And when it happens like that, you're just you just it, you don't have that experience in the film business very often. Yeah, yeah. And it's tremendous. When we did so well at the Oscars last year, uh, the the company participants a very young company. Mm-hmm. The, the average age is is about uh, thirty one years old. And you take me and a couple of other people out of the picture, and it drops below thirty. <laughs> we don't need to go there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my hair is gray. Um, uh, um, uh, but one of the things I, I said last year, you know, we, we're incredibly lucky. We we won a bunch of Oscars for for a bunch of great for, for a couple of great films, and I said to everybody afterwards, I said, you know, it doesn't happen that often. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. You yeah. Know, I've been around long enough to to have had some some success. But uh, you know, enjoy it. Right, right. right. This right. is not typical. <laughs> right, not typical. But but you did it. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, and enjoy it. Yeah, and you also just uh, underwent a major rebrand. What's the message you want to deliver? Well, the message that we're trying to get across is very straightforward, which is there is a legitimate business now called Impact Media. Mm-hmm. Um, we are at the confluence of art and activism. We are, and that is a very, very powerful meeting point. And we wanted, to, we felt that after 15 years, we could begin to talk to the power of, of impact media, and we could begin to ident- um, allow people to identify with the uh, the kinds of work, the, the kind of work that we and, and and others do, and that was that's what we were trying to get across. But the other thing that we're trying to get across is very straightforward, which is we're not alone, mm-hmm. and we're not the only ones doing it. But we want you to come and join us. We yeah. want, we, 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 and we mean it. Participants mm-hmm. want it. Well, let me ask you that. I mean, uh, on the whole, do you think the industry is living up to its responsibility um, in terms of creating that kind of impact, that social responsibility? And uh, if there's places they need to get better at, what would those be? I think that if anybody sits on their laurels and says, oh, gee whiz, uh, we did really well today so we can sit back and, and have a second cup of coffee, then we're all making a tremendous amount of – a tremendous mistake. I think that the industry, because I presume what we're talking really about is, is Hollywood and, yes. and the media business, is I think what we're seeing is the industry is beginning to embrace change. They're, they're doing it for several reasons, one of which is – it's they understand that it's an obligation. Mm-hmm. They understand that it's an ob- that it's something that not that their employees want. It's something that they understand they have an obligation to their community and to society, and they're digging in and trying to find ways of of, of doing it and doing it what I would call authentically mm-hmm. and and in in real life terms that have real positive effect on the people who work who work at these large companies. Um, so I'm encouraged. I'm seeing a lot of really good work around especially inclusion and diversity right now, which is exciting to me. And I think that one of the opportunities for companies these days is to take leadership roles because there is no specific way that you have to go about creating a more, in this case, inclusive environment uh, for the people who, um, uh, uh, that work for you. But I also think it's a business opportunity. And you see big, for instance, big financial institutions like BlackRock yes. literally saying to the world, we have that obligation. Mm-hmm. And, if, and if we don't adopt a more proactive and dynamic approach to our business and how we can make a contribution to the world, then we as businesses will suffer. And I think that that's something that we, that we, that we as a company like to reflect um, that we have that obligation, but it's but it's it's not just an obligation to do better. It's an obligation 
to change mm-hmm. because that's what our consumers and that's what our employees are asking us to do, and they are right. Yeah, yeah. David, let me ask you about the role of technology in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. What advancements or developments do you feel have the most promising effect on storytelling? I get asked all the time, mm-hmm. right, what's the world going to look like next year when all these big streaming services uh, start? And and when I talk about the streaming services, um, for the audience, Netflix is obviously the biggest one, but the big media companies, Disney, Comcast, Warner Media, are all creating competing, quote-unquote, platforms or services to Netflix. Mm-hmm. And the beauty of these so, – so when people say, what's the world going to look like in, in a year? The answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> um, but what I do know is that and, – and quite honestly, you know, I'm a big believer in film. I come from film. I'm a big, big believer in the theatrical experience, yeah. right? And I do worry about the effect of streaming on the stability of the theatrical business. But I'm also an optimist. Mm-hmm. And I believe in the audience, and I believe in how how audiences embrace content and their their interest in embracing it as in, in as many ways as possible. But the beauty of streaming is the reach. Right? We had a movie, lovely movie that we licensed to Netflix called "The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind." It was Chiwetel Ejiofor's first uh, uh, film that he directed that we sold to Netflix. And while we're not allowed to say how many people saw that, right, I know. <laughs> the, you know, the, the streamers are very, very conscious of controlling uh, or keeping data mm-hmm. uh, uh, to themselves. But, you know, they were very cooperative in talking about how and who saw the, who saw the movie. But uh, tens of millions of people saw the movie. Mm-hmm. Tens of millions of people saw this incredibly beautiful, important story about a young boy in Malawi who saved his community. And those are the kinds of stories that we love. And the ability to reach tens of millions of people as opposed to perhaps millions of people is really, really exciting because you can just imagine the effect on our impact partners. Yeah. Right? Where suddenly they're, you know, they're hoping that as many people are going to see the movie as possible and suddenly, bang. Right. Right, you're connecting to tens of millions of people. That's that's really exciting. Yeah, and they see it so quickly, as you said before, mm-hmm. the intensity of the experience. It kind of is just viral. Right, it's not over mm-hmm. a long period of time. No, and and also I think that the other thing is that there. What I do think is going to happen is I think these streaming services will increasingly create communities, mm-hmm. and I think that they will have to be able to di- differentiate themselves and how they engage with their own consumers. And one of the ways that they'll do that is create communities of conversation. And that's fantastic for impact because you can access those communities to actually then connect them to your impact partners and the work that's being done. And that then scales everything up. I think you've called it the fourth act. (laughs) (laughs) I have called it the fourth act. Let me close with this, David. Um, What's ahead? What's around the corner? What should we all be waiting for? On November 22nd, we released through Focus Features a beautiful movie directed by Todd Haynes called Dark Waters, Mm -hmm. which stars and and was produced by Mark Ruffalo and is the true story of Rob Bellot, um, who is a lawyer and, and activist. And it's a thrilling story of his uncovering the scandal around the creation of Teflon mm. and DuPont and the poisoning of, of uh, tens, tens of thousands of people around the world. 
uh, and you won't see where the movie's going. And when you get there, you'll be really amazed by 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 how he got there. It's really it's really edge of the seat, but also beautifully emotional and, and engaging because this is a real life human being, um, very much in the tradition of Spotlight, yeah. for instance. And then later in December, we were incredibly fortunate to be invited by Warner Brothers to partner on a movie that they've made called Just Mercy, mm-hmm. which is a story of an amazing advocate that maybe many of your listeners may know, Brian Stevens, sure. who runs the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And this is a movie about how people change the world, right? Is Brian Stephen is changing the narrative and the narrative of this of this country, and to see how he started, and how he connected to this one man, and how he dedicated and his organization dedicated years of their lives to freeing this man and getting him off of death row and allowing him to breathe fresh air again. I've never seen anything like it before. I, I just to be able to see how it, how it happened and how it happens in such a incredibly dramatic and gripping way. It's amazing, and and uh, we're incredibly proud of it. You have a great job. You know that. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. Well, David Linde, the CEO participant, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening and for a great conversation. Where do people go to access some of this content? Do they go to those uh, distributors you talked about, or is there things on your website or, or online? What, what, what do you would recommend? You can always check us out online. We, we have a website, participant.com, which will guide you both to where the movies are and where the campaigns are. Well, thanks, Dave. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much. I'll be back with more of the business of giving right after this. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizOfGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Bread for the World is a collective Christian voice urging our nation's decision makers to end hunger at home and abroad. It has been at this since the early 1970s and has had a profound impact in helping to change policies, programs, and conditions that allow hunger and poverty to exist. And here to tell us about this work, it's a pleasure to have with us the Reverend David Beckman, the president of Bread for the World and the 2010 recipient of the World Food Prize. Good evening, David, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Thank you, Denver. Thanks for having me. Tell us how this all got started. You've been at this for some 45 years now. What is the founding story of the organization? Well, the the founder was Arthur Simon. He's a Lutheran pastor who's brother was a senator. At the time he started it, he was a pastor in a really poor neighborhood in New York. Um, so he was just seeing a lot of people who needed help. And uh, But his brother was a member of Congress and was saying, it doesn't do much good for churches to pass resolutions about what we ought to do. You need to organize people in the district to talk to their own members of Congress. And so that's how it got started. And it became a national organization very quickly. Um, and really since the beginning, since 1974, it's just remarkable that um, a network of well-meaning people across the country who are concerned about hunger, poverty, if they take time to 
contact their members of Congress, especially if it's on specific things. If mm-hmm. they know what's going on in Congress and they tell their member of Congress, I want you to co-sponsor this bill. I want you to vote for this bill. Uh, that's very powerful. And to have people in New York, people in Idaho working together. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> unusual, too. <laughs> and it works. It works. Yeah. And we also, it's Republicans and Democrats, we uh, we really are careful to to work on issues. We think to win, typically you need to have both Republicans and Democrats working together. And and the faith basis of Bread for the World actually helps us get in the door on both sides and yeah. get them to work together. How do we define hunger, David, and how many people in the world go to bed hungry uh, every night on a regular basis? Well, uh, typically we define it differently for the poorest countries in the world in the USA. Mm-hmm. Well, in the USA, we have hunger, but the typical pattern is uh, just millions of families um, run out of food before the end of the month. The wage check runs out, their SNAP benefits run out. So the last five days of the month in lots of homes, in lots of months, Maybe five days out, mom stops eating pretty much, and mm-hmm. then the last three days, the, there's no food for the kids. So that that kind of intermittent hunger and uh, moderate malnutrition is characteristic of millions of people in our own country. It's completely avoidable yeah, um, and does damage, especially to the children and the health of the, of the adults, too. You know, it results in, in uh, obesity, mental illness, well— very expensive to our healthcare system. No doubt about then, it. Then um, globally, there are 800 million people who are uh, chronically without enough calories to make their bodies work right. Mm-hmm. So those people who are hungry in the most literal sense, the kids die in large numbers, and adults are often, you know, they don't, they can't, they can't work. They don't have energy to, they don't have as much energy as they ought to have to be fully functional. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a terrible – causes huge suffering, of course, but it's also just a terrible waste of, of human capacity. And it's – what's maybe most important about hunger is that this is a fixable problem. Yeah. In fact, the world and our country have reduced hunger and poverty in recent decades. It is a fixable problem. We know a lot about how to do it and uh, mainly what we need is more – I'm a preacher, so there's a theological term for it. We need more organized give a damn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we. <laughs> I, I never heard that technical term. <laughs> well, you know, we need we need to translate our. Con- you know, everybody's concerned about uh, kids who need help, but we need to translate that mainly into U.S. public policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the government, the U.S. government, play, has played a role, big role, in the reductions in hunger and poverty that we've achieved. And we got to get them to do more. It's not just assistance, but also policies that help people get a good job and and uh, provide for their own families. You know, we hear this term used, hidden hunger. What does that refer to? Well, um, a lot of hunger is actually hidden. I mean, in our country, people think hungry. Well, that must be uh, homeless people. But uh, every zip code has hunger. It's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, even in very affluent zip codes. The people who cut the hedges, those kids are often hungry. So it's it's everywhere. And, um, you know, also a lot of people bounce in and out. So there there is a core of people who are intergenerationally hungry and poor. But then maybe half the people who are hungry at any one time, two or three months later, they're going to be able to get a new job or they figure out, you know, they – they're out of it. And then there's an, another, uh, there are just a lot of people who in our country 
who are just making it. Mm-hmm. So then if they uh, somebody gets sick, if mom and dad fight and dad moves out, you know, those kinds of things happen in yeah. higher-income higher families too. But when they happen, when you're just on the edge, then those families are um, – Go hungry. Mm-hmm. So that's that's hidden hunger. It was usually when the, the sort of technical thing is just people who are missing certain nutrients. So maybe they get – you know, their bellies are full, but um, they're not getting enough vitamin A. They're yeah. not getting um, – and that's a, a very large group of people. Right. But so they we, look okay if you see them, but they're actually not getting the vitamins and nutrients exactly. and therefore suffering because right. of that. And that's probably 2 billion people in the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, you talked about children before. What is the impact of malnutrition on very young children? Let's say from the time a woman gets pregnant to when the child turns two years old. What can happen? Well, Denver, that's, Denver, that's a really good question, and it's a smart question because that's the key time. It's from conception to age two. That's 1,000 days. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the brain of a baby is being formed in that period. The bodies are being formed. So if if that uh, baby lacks uh, good nutrition, the body and brain do not form correctly. In, you know, in low-income countries, that you can just, if there's a, if they do an MRA, you can see that synap- there are holes in the brain tissue. Mm. The, the synapses have not formed. And once that happens, once that damage is done to a child, it is irreversible. Oh, wow. So we really have learned that if you have limited dollars, focus on pregnant women and babies. That's, that's the most urgent, always. It's, it's true in our country, too. Yeah, you know, I was seeing that about 6 million children who will die before the age of 5, 45% of those will die because of malnutrition. And that's right. a startling statistic. And then, it's, it, and then <clears throat> it's many more, many, many more who uh, don't die, but they are stunted. Mm-hmm. In their their the growth their development of their body and often their brain it's the brain that kills me that we're letting you know especially in our country why would we want why would we allow children in our who are going to be living uh, in our country for the rest of their lives why would we allow that to be that they don't get a, enough good nutrition it's to, inconceivable, isn't to it? let their brain develop yeah. you know if if you're concerned about earning capacity of you know we want these people to work well. The, the way to, one way to help people the the workforce be productive and be able to earn a living is to make sure the workforce gets enough nutrition when they're six months old. You know, David, we are a society preoccupied with bad news, but there really has been some dramatic progress in reducing hunger and poverty. I know we have a long way to go, but tell us what kind of progress has been made over the last several decades. It's absolutely just stunning. Um, from about 1990 to until today. Global hunger has uh, dropped dramatically. There were more than 2 billion people in the world in absolute poverty in 1990. We have pretty good numbers on that, actually. That's down from 2 billion to less than a billion, hmm. 700 million. So it's like about a third of, the, of what it what The number, even though the global population is growing, the number of people in absolute poverty is roughly a third of what it was yeah, through decades. It's, and it's actually less than 10% for the first time in human exactly. history. It, it, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, again, I'm a preacher, so <laughs> I think this is God. Honest to God. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is, um, it's like the exodus of the Bible, but much, much bigger. I, 
this is uh, an experience of, in my view, of uh, our loving God on the move in our own time. Um, and then also in the U.S., in the U.S., um, we, uh, we've made, if you look at it over a longer period of time, from, say, 65 until today, the number of people in poverty in the U.S. is about half of what it was. Um, but in our country, most, almost all that progress was made in the late 60s and early 70s. Right. What happened was we just decided as a country we got to do something about poverty. Mm -hmm. So in the administrations of Johnson and Nixon, mm -hmm. we set up poverty assistance programs like Medicaid, SNAP, WIC. Yep. And um, those programs have been under attack ever since. But over the years as a country, we've decided to keep those programs in place and improve the impact of those programs. And even today, they <clears throat> if we didn't have the means-tested federal programs, we'd have twice the poverty we do have. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think our country, that's important for people to know that we know a lot about how to reduce poverty, not just to help an individual family. That's important, of course. But um, we know that policy, government policies can uh, certainly assist people, provide good nutrition for babies, but that government policies can also make it easier for low-income workers to get a job that pays. Yeah. Well, you, you make the point that it is a very complicated issue. A lot of people look at hunger and they think of food assistance, but you have to think of conflict. You have to think sure. of poverty. You have to think of climate change. It's a multifaceted issue. <clears throat> and you really look at the breadth of all those. Right. But, I mean, what's not complicated is the need for organized give a damn. Yeah, organized give a damn. So that's the th I mean, so then if, if there is organized give a damn to solve it, you know, you can say to your member of Congress, solve this. Mm. You get, it helps to be specific. But then, you know, somebody else can go into all the complicated technical stuff. You don't need to – what the citizen needs to do is say, when I go to vote in 2020, I'm going to be voting for candidates who are going to help provide help and opportunity for people at the bottom mm -hmm. in our country and around the world. This is important to me. Maybe I've been there. My sister's been there. I can see this is something we ought to fix. Yeah. Well, your signature um – Organized Give a Damn program is something <laughs> called Offering of Letters. Uh, how did that get started? And tell us how that works. Well, it started way back in 1974 yeah, in, right in from the New York City. Right then, okay. Right. Uh, somebody, uh, a lady in uh, the Founders Church here in uh, a port, low, mixed race poor church here in, in New York, she had the idea of uh, instead of taking up an offering of money every time, you know, let's, in addition to the offering of money, let's take up an offering of letters to Congress. So, so that lady, uh, her idea has taken off, and now sure um, hundreds of churches all over the country mm -hmm. every year uh, talk about some specific issue. This year we're really focused on what we can do to end global malnutrition, you know, the, the, those babies that we were talking about globally. And uh, so a lot of churches talk about that issue in church, help people understand it, and then focus – like this year we're focused on a global nutrition resolution. Mm -hmm. So those churches across the country and then some people who get really into it have uh, – they've recruited 226 members of Congress from both parties as co-sponsors of the global nutrition resolution. That's now moved uh, through the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It's on the way to a vote on the floor of the House. It's on the uh, the Senate chair, the chair of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee is from Idaho. Bread for the World organized a meeting of a hundred constituents with him back home. 
So uh, in that meeting, he committed to putting it on the agenda of the Foreign Relations Committee at their next meeting. So that it's on its way to the floor of the Senate. So what what the churches have been able to do, even in this year's really toxic and divided political environment, we've been able – that offering of letters has been able to recruit broad bipartisan support Mm – for continued leadership by our government in pushing toward the end of child malnutrition. About 10 years ago, we got new evidence. So we have new style, evidence-based ways of reducing child nutrition, mm-hmm. malnutrition among babies and pregnant women. And those programs have reduced the number of um, stunted children in the world by 15 million over the last seven years. Fantastic. So we've got the argument, for, and, and on a, but it's the offering of letters. People in every congressional district going to their member of Congress that's been able to build one by one strong bipartisan support. Yeah, and the, and the brilliance of that program is that single issue, not this generic we have to end hunger, but right. really honing in something. and giving them something discreet that you're asking them right. to do and that they can act on. And also that they can think about because then, yeah. you know, maybe some years we do an issue where they think, oh, I don't quite believe, I don't agree with bread for the world. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's nothing about uh, food stamps in the Bible. So, <laughs> you know, so they, you know, on some, so it's not that we're asking the the church elders or somebody to take a position for everybody. But we're asking, the church leadership is asking their people to to think about this issue that seems to be really important to hungry people. And if you agree, then weigh in. Having led this organization for nearly three decades, has politics changed in terms of the way you go about your work? Have your strategies and tactics had to be altered based on the on the current day environment? Uh, sure. I think... Uh, uh, partisanship is much more severe. Mm-hmm. The Republican Party has really moved to the right. I mean, I think that's really what's happened. So uh, it's been it's harder for us now to work in a bipartisan way. We're still doing it. Yeah. Um, the The religious character of our organization helps us get indoors on both sides and helps us uh, get the two parties to work together. But it's tougher than it used to be. Um, I think. Uh, also, the rise of money in politics. There's just too damn much money in politics. Mm-hmm. There's a book by that name. Yes. I'll be a <laughs> I, don't, I really don't cuss, cuss very much, <laughs> but it's true. That, you know, just as our countries become more unequal in terms of money, um, people who have a lot of money, big corporations, can uh, spend money. They see that, I mean, advocacy leverages big changes. Mm-hmm. So companies and wealthy people. Uh, pay to influence the political process um, so that uh, the power of money in politics has made it uh, tougher to win. Uh, we do win. I think, you know, we the fact that we um, really try to be decent to everybody, we're not trying to zap anybody in mm-hmm, Congress, mm-hmm. and then we, we have the facts and we're we're representing hungry people, for God's sake, hungry kids often. So... You know, being right, there's real power in that. <laughs> yes. And, you know, if people from back home write or come in to see a member of Congress and they're asking him to help us uh, reduce malnutrition among babies, which member of Congress? I mean, typically members of Congress are just delighted to have the visit because they're getting pushed around by um, 
by big donors, by uh, corporate interests all the time, and to have a people group of people from back home who really care about making the world a better place. Yeah, that's it's something just, they can embrace. Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as controversial yeah, as some I mean, of the they, other issues that all, they have. And it's conservative and liberal people yeah. that, that they often are really glad to have folks from And, home. you know, you've used the word we uh, a lot of times, and it is important to remember that this is a collective effort. And a key yeah. component of that was something that the organization started called the Alliance to End Hunger. Tell us about that. Right. Uh, Fifteen years ago, Bread for the World is a uh, Christian organization. Mm-hmm. We're not exclusively Christian, but we do some of our materials talk about Jesus, which uh, actually is, you know, very has been very powerful in lots of ways. But it's also a limitation. Um, so, uh, because if we're going to end hunger, that's what we're trying to do. We're yeah. trying to virtually end. Right, you're not mitigating hunger. here. You want to no, wipe we, it out. We want to, or virtually. I mean, there'll yeah, be some right. people who have drug addiction or something, mm-hmm. and they don't eat. But we we think we can virtually end hunger, both in our country and around the world. Uh, but to get that done, we need it can't just be church people. Mm-hmm. So um, we organized the Alliance in Hunger to um, help diverse organizations, Jewish and Muslim groups, secular organizations, corporations, universities, um, uh, hospitals, to help uh, a broad array of organizations that understand that hunger is important to them, um, get involved in the in changing public opinion and changing politics. So um, it's proved to be very, uh, you know, so we've been able to recruit very powerful allies, mm-hmm. uh, a network of hospitals and healthcare providers who realize that that uh, if our, a lot of our people are going home and there's not enough food in the refrigerator, they'll be back to the hospital. So yeah. uh, universities, there are about 200 universities who are part of a Universities Fighting World Hunger Network. That was organized by a university, Auburn University, that's part of the Alliance to mm. End Hunger. So uh, uh, that, that, that's been a way of broadening. Um, and and w- we still got a way to go on that. Obviously, we're not, we haven't ended hunger, but uh, the Alliance to End Hunger has been a powerful way to, to get into more places. Yeah. And you're a Lutheran minister, and ending hunger has always been a central issue for the Lutherans, hasn't it? Well, it has. That's. Uh, I mean, I think it's a central issue for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, but you've been very that, that. I don't know why that is exactly. Yeah. I. Um, but I think it is actually the Lutherans have been uh, consistent on it. I think it's partly because there are a lot of Lutherans in the Upper Midwest, mm. rural people, farm people. You know, so they see the productivity of American agriculture and think, why? Well, why, you know, why is this happening? Yeah, why? And so a lot of just decent people who are connected uh, to farming and agriculture. Um, uh, want to act? I think also um, theologically. Uh, theologically, I think that you know Lutherans emphasize uh, God's love, God's grace, God's forgiveness, and there's a lot of power in that. Mm-hmm. I think uh, actually, a Harvard sociologist did a study of uh, American religion and how it translates into c- civic and charitable life, and he found that people who experience God as a loving presence in their lives are more likely to support foreign aid and food aid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, they don't necessarily go to church. <laughs> and sometimes uh, go, people who go to church, I mean, it depends on where you go to church. But um, That's a whole different show here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a different story, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the corporate culture at Bread for the World, what you do to shape and influence it, and you know, what aspect do you think of it is working there that is most distinctive and special? Well, the... Um, 
Bread for, we have a very active network of people who are not employed by Bread for the mm-hmm. World, but they are the 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 network of uh, people who who give time, give themselves, in some cases a lot of time, to organize Bread for the World activity in their churches and communities across the country. They're very much part of our culture. About a million people now take action with us sometime. Uh, a lot of those people now we connect with digitally. Um, so that's part of our cor- corporate culture, that we realize that our distinctive power is that um, all those people are active, involved, pay attention, and use their influence uh, with their friends and their members of Congress. I think that's distinctive. Uh, in terms of the – it's also remarkably diverse. Mm. We're uh, – both our network and our staff are uh, uh, multiracial, uh, bipartisan. Um, another thing I think just a, is really wonderfully, they're well-meaning people. Yeah. They're people who are not only charitable but kind of go that second mile mm. of saying, it's not just put a nickel on the drum. How do we change it? You know, how do we change things so that people can are not going to be in need? Yeah. And uh, the the kind of people who – who uh, work as staff on that kind of structural change or who give money mm-hmm. to support that kind of structural change, uh, I'm struck that I get to meet a lot of wonderful people. Yeah, yeah. And actually, people like that are generally good people to work with because it exactly. isn't just yeah. towards the cause itself. It's also towards each other. Right. And it's a generous and a kind culture, and that is always yeah. a, a special place to show up every morning, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've got our issues too. But, oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would hope so. But I think we do, like, we do a good job with interns. Yeah. We, when interns come in, they get a good experience. They don't just send them to the copy machine. Yeah. And that's because the people are nice. Mm-hmm. They, they, they're trying to do the right thing. Let me close with this, David. Um, we've talked a lot about what you do, but what is the impact uh, of what you do been on you? What have you personally witnessed? What have you personally seen with some of the things that you've started in Congress and maybe mm-hmm. how it's even come back to your own family? Well, one thing that um, I have two adopted sons, uh, and uh, one thing that really hit me was uh, when my older son uh, searched for his uh, birth mother, um, he contacted her online and uh, Within a week, she had joined Bread for the World. <laughs> and I thought, what's this? And, um, you know, we didn't even know her yet. Uh-huh. And, um, it, she, she, looked on, she looked me up, Googled me, and so she knew about Bread for the World. And she saw that Bread for the World has, over the years, uh, strongly supported the Women, Infants, and Children Nutrition Program in this country, WIC. And uh, when she got pregnant way back, she, um, she uh, didn't have enough uh, money and so she needed the WIC program to provide good nutrition for the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, the WIC program, in fact, was under attack, and Bread for the World was campaigning to protect the WIC program. Bread for the World members back then. So um, my son is a really bright, uh, extraordinarily energetic person. But I realize that if it hadn't been for the work of Bread for the World advocates. When he was in utero, mm-hmm. he wouldn't. He might not be as bright as he is, and uh, so it really is true that um, that I'm one of the many, many beneficiaries of the 
advocacy of bread for the world people over many years. That's incredible, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it really is. Well, Reverend David Beckman, the president of Bread for the World, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Now, what can listeners do to help support this work? What do you want them to do? What's their call to action? Okay, well, the the, the door in is bread.org. Mm-hmm. Bread.org, pretty easy. And um, we need money to, to keep the thing afloat, so uh, feel free to contribute. But then we also need... We need people who uh, are willing to, to think about the, how to reduce hunger and poverty, how to reduce it, how to move toward the end of, of hunger, and then use their influence with their families and then especially their members of Congress. Yeah. We help people become effective advocates with their members of Congress. You know, it's not enough to, to click, but how to move from clicking on an email – to being an effective advocate with your member of Congress, it is very powerful. And over and over, maybe the most important thing about bread is that we win. Over and over again, we make changes that help provide help and opportunity to millions, sometimes tens of millions of hungry people. Well, this is the kind of winning we can all embrace. Thanks, Dave. It was great to have you on the show. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing it. And that is this week's show. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And do return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.